0: Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer some patron emails. This first email, well, actually, it's not just an email. It's several emails from several patrons asking me to talk about the TV show BoJack Horseman. If you haven't seen it, it's a cartoon in which a... Uh, guy with a horse head it's it takes place in hollywood and there's all these different characters some of them are human and some of them are like human animal hybrids and uh, the lead character bojack horseman is a depressed kind of um washed up actor and has different people around him and it's i don't know um I like it. it it's, a, it's a funny show. It's It's got a lot uh, of depth to it, I think, and that's why a lot of patrons have asked me to talk about it for many, many years, actually, <laughs> and I, I keep, uh, particularly whenever I do YouTube live events, uh, people always ask, you know, so, you know, have you done an episode on BoJack Horseman yet? And so, and I think I've talked about it kind of in the past, but I, I haven't really done any sort of depth to it, so I thought I'd do so here today. There's a lot written about it online in relation to psychology in my field, a lot of authors writing that Bojack Horseman is an accurate depiction of mental illness, that it portrays intergenerational trauma well, that it uh, has a a lot to say uh, about asexuality, you know, very progressive in that way. And so that's why I'm guessing people have been asking me to talk about it. So before moving forward, I just want to say there's some small spoilers and so if you're not up to date and you're really up, you really want to be up to date, you know, maybe skip ahead 15 minutes or so. But patron Rachel actually was listening to the YouTube live, and, and uh, I, I finally hit a breaking point, and I was like, okay, fine, I'll do an episode on BoJack Horseman, but I don't want to watch all seven or six or five seasons or something, so can you just send me a couple episodes that you think I should watch that would help me to really understand or give me some material to talk about on the show? Because I've seen a few episodes, but this probably probably like during the first season. So, Patron Rachel wrote in and uh, told told me to watch a couple episodes. The first episode she asked me to watch was season four, episode six. This episode is titled "Stupid Piece of Shit." Uh, essentially, this this whole episode, uh, Bojack, it, we hear his inner thoughts. We hear him shaming himself. This inner dialogue um you know where he's he's going through his day and he's you know you wake the first thing he you know he wakes up in the morning the first thing he thinks is you're a piece of shit you know what's wrong with you you don't do anything right uh everything you do is wrong everyone hates you and they should hate you and then he says but you know I know I'm a piece of shit which makes me better than the other pieces of shit And then he sits down to eat breakfast, and he's eating cookies, he's eating Oreos, and he's like, don't eat that other... You're eating Oreos for breakfast, you know, this is all inner dialogue. He's like, what's wrong with you? You're, you know, don't eat that other cookie, don't eat that other cookie. But from the outside, we see that he doesn't look like he's suffering. It looks like he's just kind of a slacker going through his day. But on the inside, it's just this constant dialogue of self-hatred and judgment and just all these voices and... And I would say that this is extremely accurate for not only just all of us suffer to some extent from this, but particularly people who have been through hard times. It's implied through the show, and maybe there are other episodes that uh, you know give more details on this. But that BoJack Horseman, as a kid, was emotionally uh, abused and neglected by his mom, and and I don't know about his father, but. Uh, but his mom, and that uh, neglect and emotional abuse has created a very unhappy adult in Bojack Horseman, and and the way one of the ways this manifests is through this, you know, voice of self shame. You know, he'll he'll be saying, uh, you know, uh, everyone's looking at you, and then he leaves the office, and he's like, I wonder if you know what they're talking about me. Are they are they talking about me? And then he's like, okay, you know, I'm just going to go to the bar. I'm going to get one drink. And then he's like, oh crap, I drink too much. And then he starts thinking about, will his life have any meaning, meaning at all? And you know, he'll he'll die one day, and no one will remember him. And then at the end of the day, he's like, you know, you're a piece of shit. You're an idiot. You know, what did you do with your day? You didn't do anything. And then his mom is loving this this doll. It's like this baby surrogate of some kind, and. And he's like, you know, are you jealous of a doll? You know, you're gonna, you're gonna screw this up. And so, there's, and then he actually thinks about suicide. And he says, I don't deserve love. And of course, your his mother never loved him. And so there's all these these voices. Now, there's a lot of different ways to conceptualize why we have that kind of inner dialogue and why some people have it more than others. The way that I see it is through object relations and uh, interpersonal psychodynamic theory, which holds that through our early relationships, we will internalize those relationships. We don't just internalize the other person, but we internalize the whole relationship. So, And when I'm teaching my students, I, I draw it all out, and it takes me hours to explain it all, but in a nutshell— when you say you're, you know, five years old and you're hanging out with your father, and your father it gives you this vibe or even overtly says things to the effect that you're a piece of shit, or you're just worthless, or you're not, um, you're not competent, or you're not smart enough, or you're not, you're just not good enough. You're getting these messages somehow from your father, and you internalize the relationship. So you internalize. The father, but you also internalize the self—a representation of the self because we observe the self. So we observe the father and we observe the self, and we internalize that relationship. It's sort of a weird thing to internalize yourself, if that makes any sense. But anyway, we we develop an internalized uh, representation of that relationship in our psyche, and with repetition, this becomes a stable part of the of the you know psychic system. And so, as we age this uh, this internalized representation will manifest in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways it manifests is through self-talk and through these quote-unquote old tapes that get played out in our head. And so uh, even though at the age of 35 or 40, however old Bojack Horseman is, his father is no longer around, the voice of his father is still in his mind. The telling him i don't know if it was his father that was telling him he was a piece of shit someone someone made him feel that way and so it's this it's no longer from the outside it's from the inside this happens a lot tragically to people it's one of the most tragic parts of the human condition is that those people who are treated the worst as children end up beating themselves up the most as adults which it just doesn't seem fair you know it's like you get screwed as a kid and then you end up, uh, you know, with a with a condition as an adult in which you are now the perpetrator of the emotional abuse inside your own head. And that's what BoJack Horseman is doing to himself. You know, as soon as his eyes open in the morning, you're a piece of shit. What What's wrong with you? And then because of all that self-shame, he needs to soothe himself. He needs to... He needs to eat Oreos to, you know, try to feel better. He needs to have a drink to make himself feel better. He needs to avoid relationships because there's just so much shame. Whenever he interfaces with his daughter and his and his mom, there's this, there's these, all these feelings come up for him, and he and he doesn't know what to do with them. And because, and this is all, another part of that tragedy is that those who are treated the worst and are made to feel the worst, the worst they feel so bad that they can't actually open up to other people t- to the point where they can actually improve their lives. So as you're watching this episode, you're you you know, Bojack is interacting with his mom, interacting with his daughter and other people, and all you can think of is just like, you know, Bojack let down your defenses and uh, just tell people how you feel. Uh, because other people are good and you know, your daughter is good, you can reach out to her. She uh, she's a chip off the old block and, and she'll understand, you know, just just be nice and just tell her, you know, just tell her, you know what, honey, I'm, I am I just feel like I'm a piece of shit sometimes and I'm sorry and I, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. The daughter would have absolutely received that. But because of the um, amount of abuse Bojack has been through and the ongoing defenses have created a certain s- stable system for him that he can't open up, He it's hard for him to uh, Trust that he could level with people in that way. And so it perpetuates the problem because the more he gives this vibe that he doesn't care, but internally he actually cares too much in some ways, uh, it pushes people away. And so it just further reinforces this idea that he's a piece of shit because everyone's rejecting him. So again, on the outside, we see someone that's angry. We see someone that's neglecting of his own daughter. So as he's struggling with his own, uh, uh, feelings of neglect of his mom, he is also in that very moment neglecting his own daughter. He acts like nothing matters on the outside, even though on the inside, it definitely matters. The the thing I always think about is like, who are the most insecure, you know, what age group is the most insecure age group on the planet? Well, everyone knows it's 13-year-olds. 13-year-olds are the most insecure people on the planet, 14, 13. And yet they're the most Uh, concerned with acting like they don't care, right? That's just a classic, like, I'm a teenager, I don't care, you know, whatever, you know, all those kinds of stereotypes, whatever, you know, it's fine, it's chill, or whatever. And yet, on the inside, they're just the most insecure people on the planet. And so we don't, uh, we can see that in other age groups, too. Bojack Horseman, and as, a, as an older person, he's doing that, too. He's so insecure and so shameful on the inside. But as a, as a defense against the shame, he tries to act like he's not ashamed, which, again, pushes people away and causes him to feel more shame about himself. He's hurt a lot of times, so he, he can be very hostile. He's sarcastic. Again, he drinks to cope. And he disappears all day, which is actually very common. So another uh, aspect to this show that I thought was, um, you know, I think briefly touched upon that is accurate is the way in which the patterned behavior of an alcoholic will become. Over time, it's very, very common for people who suffer from alcoholism is to... Disappear all day or to disappear for weeks or to disappear emotionally for a point for a period of time, because what happens is they are suffering on the inside deeply traumas, attachment, insecurity, shame, and they they don't have any other way to cope. And again, because they don't trust other people, they uh, they they have to turn to something else instead of support, which would actually. Heal their wounds, um, but because they because they're in a cash twenty-two, in order to heal from their wounds, they have to trust people. In order to trust people, they have to heal from their wounds, and so they're they're trapped. And so, what they will find is that when they drink or use uh, opiates or something, they will f- suddenly go, "Wow, you know, I I don't some of that pain is has gone away, or at least I'm numb to the pain." You know, it's like, I, I don't feel anything right now, which is which is better than feeling things like the way I was feeling before I was high and drunk. And so, so they do that. But when they're like that, people don't like being around them because, you know, when you're sober and you're just trying to get through your day, it's hard to be around someone who's hammered, right? Also, you end up, uh, because of this need to self-medicate, you end up uh, privileging that, prioritizing that over your other responsibilities. And what happens is there's, this chronic uh, uh, irresponsibility that happens for people, and in the beginning, you know, the person with alcoholism is, is trying to navigate that. But after you know a few years, the person with alcoholism will eventually learn it's probably best that I just make sure everyone understands that I'm not responsible. Because if I if I give the impression that I'm responsible and that I will show up and that um, you know I'm a part of the the normal sea of life i'm going to disappoint them so it's better just to give everyone the impression and this is partially unconscious it's better if i just give everyone the impression that i'm completely incompetent i'm i'm a flake i'll never show because then they'll they'll just know now on one side they're trying to push everyone away but on the other side they're desperately wanting people to reach out to them. So it's this kind of loop that happens. And as an outsider what you'll you know if you've ever had a family and I'm just guessing some of the listeners have had family members like this or have even been like this. But if you've had family members like this or a friend that was like this, you you'll 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 recognize it. You'll be like, "Yeah, you know, I'd I had someone who I suspected suffered from drug addiction and there would just be these times when they would just completely flake. I would ask them to hang out, and we would we'd say, "Yeah, we'll hang out." And then he, you know, he or she just wouldn't show, or uh, you know, would completely just uh, you know stop all Facebook activity for a month, and then suddenly they're back, and it's all part of that shame and self-medication pattern from the outside. It can be, it can feel very hurtful. It can seem very confusing. The other thing about it while I'm on this tangent is that when you suffer from an addiction, you're very protective of the addiction because you need the addiction. One, because you're addicted, but two, because you probably started the addiction to numb the pain, the emotional pain that you're going through. And in order to uphold that ability to to survive, you know, minute to minute, you have to uh, keep your addiction. And one of the ways that you keep your addiction is to make sure that no one really knows that you have the addiction. Because if everyone knows that you have an addiction, then that raises the possibility that they're going to, you know, try to intervene or give you advice. And you just don't want to hear it Um, mainly because of shame, but also because uh, you just don't want to bother. And also because you, you don't want people to get in the way of your only, seemingly only way to cope. So when there's ever any kind of sign that, the your actual day-to-day activities are becoming known to other people the person who is suffering with alcoholism will take a lot of actions measures to uh, sort of hide their life from other people and so they'll become it'll be to the outside it'll become it'll look just very strange because one day they'll seem fine and the next day they'll just be completely disappeared and then they'll come back a week into your life and they seem fine again and you'll be like what happened and they'll be oh you know nothing I was you know I was just kind of busy and and they'll be very convincing is the thing because again in order for them to uphold their seemingly only way to cope they have to become very good liars and this is you know once they are find out it's really hurtful but it's because of the deep suffering that these people are going through. And I think that uh, this episode and other episodes of BoJack Horseman depicts that as well. Um, so, yeah, she also asked, patron Rachel also asked me to watch season five, episode seven, titled Int Sub, which is uh, an episode in which there's a therapist and uh, BoJack goes into therapy and... Um, his friend um, also, I don't know, it's sort of a long story, but essentially there's grieving involved. I won't go into detail on that because it's it's probably less important. But anyway, okay, so looking at BoJack Horseman, what diagnosis does he suffer from? Well, let's look at his symptoms first. We, As, as I've been saying, he has a lot of self-hatred. He's very insecure. He has difficulty soothing himself. He's quite insensitive to other people's feelings. Uh, although he, he does show sign of empathy and compassion for other people, so we would say that he's he has an impaired empathy because of his suffering, that his uh, he's too distracted internally to notice other people's feelings or have the capacity to care. He's quite selfish and quite self-centered, and he's fixated on the his neglect from his mom and from the emotional abuse that he went through, and he has suicidal thoughts. He does. He does. He has a lot of behaviors that are trying to soothe himself. He he can be narcissistic. He can drink to cope. He uses humor and sarcasm to cope and also to uh, be passive aggressive to other people. He's hostile. He's over overtly hostile. Uh, He's also, he he exhibits healthy behaviors like occasionally being able to like himself without being narcissistic about it. Occasionally being able to trust others enough to open up to them. So we see that as well. So the personality spectrum that I would put him on is the borderline spectrum. I, I will say that it's not an accurate depiction of borderline because the show is trying to be entertaining and humorous. And borderline is generally not entertaining and humorous. So, uh, you know. I wouldn't look to BoJack Horseman as a, a case example of borderline, but if I had to put, you know, because these these shows, tip, you know, it's always Sunny or uh, I don't know Friends or Seinfeld. All these shows have, you know, they're trying to be entertaining and humorous, and and they'll try to have people uh, have some consistent personality from show to show. Otherwise, it would be too chaotic, right? And so there's this temptation for us to go like, oh, you know, what personality spectrum are these people on? But again, these people don't really exist, you know, <laughs> like uh, they, they, they're, uh, they're sort of echoes of real life. So anyway, I will just have that caveat. But if I had to put them on a spectrum based on the sort of entertaining humorous um, depiction is the borderline spectrum, we see a lot of hurt feelings. Which is uh, common for people on the borderline. Again, as I've talked about in other episodes, people uh, the reason why people develop borderline spectrum personality is because, and that's my term, borderline spectrum, by the way. You're not going to see much talk about that. But the uh, origin is abuse, neglect, abandonment and the child is faced with a dilemma they can either give up on other people or they can strive very hard they can strive uh you know very intensely on retaining closeness with other people and for the borderline person that's what they decide early in life they decide that uh i'm i'm you know they're like i'm getting very little love i'm being abandoned i'm being hurt i'm being abused and so my Uh, I choose to cope with that by actually reaching out to other people a lot, being obsessed to some level with other people, being very watchful of other people, noticing the emotional state of other people so I can try to manage them, learning how to manage other people, i.e. learning how to manipulate them, Uh, exaggerating uh, my uh, attachment injury Uh, signals so when someone hurts me i'm going to cry i'm going to amplify the crying i'm going to amplify the upsetness i'm going to amplify my hurt i'm going to amplify my anger i'm going to amplify all those things because otherwise no one will notice me and i'll truly be abandoned And so the only way i can retain any kind of closeness is by amplifying all these things um and at the same time, I feel like I'm a piece of shit. I feel like I'm empty. I feel like I'm worthless. Like, like not just kind of worthless, but like deeply, deeply worthless. Because that's how th- that's the way I've been treated. And these defenses and notions get carried on into adulthood and just sort of, um, you know, run on autopilot. Again, it's that tragedy. It's like this person's massively mistreated uh, as a child, and then as an adult, the mistreatment is perpetuated from the inside. So the borderline spectrum person will have a lot of hurt feelings naturally. They'll be very sensitive. They'll have a lot of feelings of worthlessness, a lot of guilty feelings. They'll they'll not be very close to other people. They'll feel not very close to other people. They'll feel disconnected from other people. They will exhibit frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. Uh, Bojack Horseman does that again in an entertaining, humorous way, um, like in the episode that uh, Patron Rachel asked me to watch. Um, he goes to a therapist for the first time, and um, it, it becomes an all-good relationship. And, and he basically instantly kind of falls in love with his therapist. And then very, when things get a little wonky, he instantly rejects his therapist and walks out the door and never goes back. Uh, so you'll see that. And I think Bojack has a fair amount of that where in the course of the series where he'll be very into someone, and then he'll, they'll hurt him, and he'll suddenly reject them. Unstable sense of self, meaning that he doesn't actually know how he feels. He doesn't know what he wants um, because, again, you weren't treated well enough as a child to actually develop that sense of who you are. Impulsiveness is another thing. Self-harm. I I don't see any self-harm other than I guess you could say that drinking uh, heavily is self-harm. Mood changes, we definitely see that. Emptiness, certainly see that. Inappropriate, intense anger, we certainly see that and paranoia and or dissociation we could say there's some paranoia but i I don't see any um, dissociative symptoms again this isn't an accurate depiction of borderline but if you know if, if we're going to look on any kind of personality spectrum that would be it uh so that's what i would say you could make an argument for narcissism you could actually actually also make an argument for histrionic that's why the cluster b's kind of fit together as you know borderline histrionic and narcissism they they're categorized together because there's so much overlap, um, but you know given his uh, his efforts to engage other people and his um, and his and his uh, sense of self worthlessness to the to the narcissistic person, their inner dialogue wouldn't be so much self hatred people with narcissism absolutely do hate themselves in the same way, but they typically aren't con- as conscious of it people with borderline are much more conscious of their self-hatred. So um, so there's that. All right, so I hope that uh, you people out there, <laughs> you people are finally happy that I talked about BoJack Horseman. Uh, I like the show, you know, clever humor. The references are, you know, real quick. Just some of the references... I get because of my age. And some of the guests, some of the references I don't get because of my age as well. So there's a, there's a wide variety of referenced generations that that are in there. Uh, and, you know, the show is progressive, It about asexuality, about mental illness, and about, I guess, diversity. Now, one thing I don't like about the show, which I you know have have not liked for a long time, is that once again another Asian character is played by a white person. If you're familiar with the show, uh, there's a Vietnamese American character, Diane Nguyen, which I um, appreciate that they actually in a cartoon have a Asian American person. Uh, so that's good, but she's the character is voiced by Alison Brie, if you remember from Community, and I think she was on Mad Men. Uh, she's she's a white person, and uh, it's just like you couldn't find you couldn't find an Asian American person. Now Allison Brie is great, so I could see why you would want her to be a part of the team. Uh, and the character didn't have to be Asian American. The character could have been white or could have been a cat, you know. But the the creator said, "I want BoJack's main girlfriend or friend to be an Asian American person." and the fact that she's Asian American isn't highlighted a lot she's she's just another person in in Hollywood which if you live on the west coast and particularly in Hawaii you know being Asian American is just like being an american <laughs> like there's uh, like myself i'm an asian american i i don't walk around in a constant state of awareness of the fact that i'm asian american i i just i'm an american person anyway so they kind of have that vibe on the show, which is good. The creator actually has since regretted uh, casting Allison Brie for that character, which I find to be very refreshing that a uh, show creator would actually admit and i and and I could totally see that because you know six, seven years ago whenever they were developing the show and casting it 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 wasn't as well known to white people uh, this trend of whitewashing things um, you know the Uh, the Russell Crowe movie in Hawaii in which um, Emma Stone, if you know her, very white, (laughs) a very white person playing a Asian American uh, girl. Uh, And it's in Hawaii because, you know, the the movie takes place in Hawaii and you're just like, well, you got to have, you got to have some uh, Asian American people because there's a shit ton of Asian. That's the norm. Like I always say the one place on the planet that I feel normal is in Hawaii because as a, as a HAPA, as a half Japanese person myself um, who is Americanized, you know, I'm, uh, but has a Japanese American cultural heritage and influence and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the one place on the planet where I don't feel like a freak is, is in Hawaii. And, you know, growing up, you know, to this day, it's just like the sort of foods that we eat, the sort of things we say, the sort of things we're interested in um, is you know, it's just slightly different. And in the way that I'm, I'm sure that French Americans or French Canadians or um, you know Italian Americans, you know, everyone has their own little little uh, uh, cultural pocket that they live in, and um, mine is uh, overwhelmingly represented in Hawaii. <laughs> And very little represented anywhere else. Anyway, so, yeah, the creator said they regret that. And, and uh, so it's it's not a blaringly terrible thing, but it, it's just, you know, again, for people who might be like, oh, my God, you know, we're supposed to have quotas on shows. No, uh, it's not that big of a deal. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it's just it's a tiny complaint. The other thing is, is it's just it's just the rep competitive nature of this sort of thing. It just happens over and over. You know, if this happened just one or two times, you we wouldn't, Asian Americans, we wouldn't even notice it. But it just happens over and over and over again. Um, while I'm on this topic, while I'm ranting and raving, uh, something like 5-7% of Americans are Asian American. Actually, maybe I should look up the exact stat. Yeah, 6% of Americans are Asian American. Now, how many uh, TV characters and movie characters are Asian-American. Are 6% of the lead characters Asian-American? No, uh, they're not. (laughs) Now, other uh, groups can claim similar kinds of things, but 6%, so, you know, one out of every 19, one out of every 18 uh, Americans is Asian-American like me, and you know, one out of every two thousand leading roles in TV you know, in TV or 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 less than that. It's probably you know, one out of every ten thousand movie roles and T V roles and leading roles. Not not the ancillary, you know, character, but the leading role Asian American. Now again, it, you know, Asian Americans, we're not crying ourselves to sleep every night over this. It's it's not it's not something that I'm gonna, you know, picket over or, you know, boycott netflix over or something but it's just it's notable and uh you know it's not the end of the world it's not like it impeded my life but it just it just hurts and and it particularly hurts when you have an asian character You're like oh yay and then you're like oh my god allison brie is the voice actress for this character like you couldn't find a single fucking asian american in hollywood to (laughs) voice this character like there's so many funny, interesting Asian-American voice actors out there. It's like, what? And even if you're, say, well, you wanted something, someone famous. You know, you got Will Arnett and you got the guy from Breaking Bad. And, you know, you, you want you want a famous person. You want Alison Brie in there. Well, there are famous Asian-American actresses. <laughs> so, you know, you could have picked anybody. Anyway, again, I commend the show just for even having the cartoon character of a Vietnamese-American, which is great. Uh, All right, let's go on to another email, but first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. I want to thank patron Aaron Dopers for donating to the scholarship fund. Aaron reached out and said, hey, I want to donate specifically to the scholarship fund, and he gave a sizable donation. So I want to thank him. Also... If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Part of your uh, pledge every month goes towards various different philanthropic efforts that we uh, do, one of which is scholarships. Others are uh, um, charities for LGBTQ people, Trevor Projects, uh, Camp Ten Trees. We also give money to homelessness organizations and animal organizations like Pet Finder Foundation. So... Go to patreon.com, become a patron, and you won't have to listen to any ads, and you get a you get access to all of our best episodes. Also, join us on Facebook. Like our Facebook page. That's where we do all of our main announcements. You know, With all the different social media platforms, it's just hard to keep everything straight. And so uh, I know some people don't have Facebook, and so um, people tend to have Instagram if they don't have Facebook. And so we also do Instagram as well. But our main announcements are on Facebook because it just lends itself to that kind of thing. Also, we have a Facebook fan group where you can post anything you want. You can go there and post questions or participate in conversations. So do that now. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, I've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, chronic depression, anorexia for about 20 years. I've been hard at work with schema therapy since August and these past few months I've been getting more and more overwhelmed by my by my many painful memories from my past. I experience these several times a day in a very intrusive way. We don't focus on these memories in therapy. It's more that in identifying my schemas and my maladaptive behavioral patterns, these memories seem to become very present in my mind. Is this a natural part of this kind of therapy? Okay, just chiming in here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's very normal to have intrusive, you know, if you suffer from traumatic memories and have traumas in your past that... Um, have yet to be resolved or healed sufficiently so that they don't become intrusive and distressing, then it's natural that they would crop up really at any time because there's a, a lot of potential triggers. But it's a pretty obvious trigger that when you start talking about, well, like, you know, let's say that you were sexually abused and, or no, let's let's say you were physically abused and terrified as a child by your mother. Your mother was very aggressive and angry a lot. And uh, in therapy, you talk about how you don't trust other people. And you don't talk directly about the fact that your mother was angry and would hit you and would terrify you. So you don't talk specifically about those traumas, but you do talk about the fact that you have a really hard time trusting other people that you have a hard time when people are angry at you. Well, it's natural to imagine that the person might have triggered trauma through those conversations, right? Because it's it's such a it's such a closely related topic, you know, the way your trauma manifests today and the actual traumas that you went through, those are very related topics. And so As you talk about your schemas, which have absolutely everything to do with the way you were raised, uh, then it would make sense that your traumas would be triggered. And the way to do this properly in therapy is to make sure that the therapist and the client have a language of monitoring one's distress and managing one's distress, and I, you know, I find myself just beating this drum with my supervisees and my students and other people that in, in order for, you know, if there's any detection of PTSD of any kind, of any level with a client, even if it's not recognized or perceived or um, diagnosed yet or seen, if there's a possibility, then the therapist is responsible for making sure that they uh, tread lightly so that they don't re-traumatize the client. I don't know what you're going through. It's, you know, you're not giving a, a ton of details, so it's hard for me to know. Uh, I'd really have to assess you, you know, in my clinical practice to really know. But there are signs that therapy is is harming you. You know, you are working on your schemas, which is probably a good thing on some level. But you say that several times a day you are experiencing intrusive, painful memories And from the way you're writing, it doesn't sound like you're talking about how to manage that with your therapist. Now, it depends on what you mean by intrusive. If it's mildly intrusive and mildly distressful, then, yeah, that's going to happen. Even in good PTSD treatment, that's going to happen. But if you're talking about debilitating, highly distressful, intrusive, uh, past memories popping into your mind throughout the day, and your therapist doesn't have an approach for how to manage that, How to, one, how to help you manage it outside of session, and two, how to make sure the sessions aren't going too fast. This is a very common thing and why I'm always beating this drum. Okay, it's going on. Let's go on with your email. I also want to talk to you about, talk to you about something that happened when I was 13. At 13, I attempted suicide when I was home alone. A few hours after... Uh, My mother noticed I'd taken some pills and drank alcohol. She called me a silly girl and slapped me across the face. And that was it. I just went to bed and went to school the next day. A friend noticed my behavior being very odd, notified a teacher who brought me to a hospital where I stayed for three days. During this time, a child psychiatrist came in to talk to me at the hospital. She asked why I did what I did, why I tried to kill myself, but I didn't want to speak about it. The psychiatrist ended up sitting at my bedside for the whole hour, not saying anything. When she left, she said, Well, if you can't say it, try writing it down in a letter to me, which I did. I wrote about feeling very unsafe at home, describing sexually abusive behavior by my father. She never talked to me about this this letter. I never saw her again. When I was allowed to go home, <clears throat> she apparently did talk to my parents, She did go over the letter with my parents, and being back at home, I was subjected to heavy verbal outrage by my father. He said things like, don't you dare say such things about me ever again. My mother stayed silent, and that was it. Nothing was ever said about it again. As a teenager, I guess I internalized what had happened as, you are a stupid, silly girl. Some teachers knew what had happened with my father. So did some family members. No one ever talked about it with me. Everyone just seemed to ignore it. How can anyone, the psychiatrist, my family, teachers, not have followed up with me? It blows my mind. I really don't understand how the adults in my life handle this, just plainly ignoring a child in need. I would be interested in hearing your thoughts about this behavior. How would you begin to explain that all the adults just made it a taboo subject? Apart from my father, I don't, I don't consider the other people that I, that knew as bad, apart from my father, I don't consider the other people that knew to be bad people. The psychiatrist was clearly incompetent as fuck, and I really feel disgusted by this. End of email. Yeah. Well, first off, I'm I'm really sorry that this happened. Terribly sorry. One that the abuse happened. That's awful. And then two that everyone failed you, including the psychiatrist. It's this double trauma that a lot of people go through. It's often ignored. It's one thing to be sexually abused, right? I think most, most people can understand if your father is sexually abusing you, that's going to be traumatic. It's going to be awful. But what's not acknowledged is the trauma upon disclosing it to one or more people and having those people ignore it. So not only do you have one person in your life who is abusive and doesn't consider your feelings as they you know, utilize you and exploit you for their own needs. But then you turn to the world and the world lets you down. Again, it's one thing if there's one evil person in the world. It's another thing if the whole world is evil. It's a, it's a You could imagine that that would be equally, if not more traumatic for some people. A lot of people experience this when they go to the justice system and and, then, and the justice system lets them down they were raped and they go to the you know a police officer and they're let they're made to feel like it was their fault or they're just not responded to watch unbelievable the netflix tv show for more of that and or listen to our episodes about that it's absolutely another uh, abusive moment that has much broader implications of just like well Not only are there some evil people, but, you know, everyone in the world doesn't even care. It's just like I live in this weird, bizarro world of which I feel like I care, but no one seems to care. So that's not going to do well for your working models of other people. And yes, the psychiatrist, according to your description, was clearly incompetent. We'd have to have her, you know, side of the story to really know, of course. But from your description, you know, you told her uh, through your writing that you were being sexually abused by your father and she did nothing not only did she do nothing to respond to that, but then she tells your father that you told her and then sends you home with her. So this is awful. It's not incredibly common for this to happen these days, but it does happen. And um, so, you know, so your main question is, you know, why would people do this? Particularly your mother, you know, why would your mother not respond? I guess, why would the psychiatrist not respond? Why would teachers not respond? Well, there's a lot of possibilities and they're common. They're so common that I can just rattle them off the top of my head. I mean, one thing is, is that people could have been terrified of him. The uh, your mother could have been abused by him as well, and was worried that he was going to kill her or kill you if she, you know, stood up for you. So part of it is just your. It's a survival uh, mechanism. And then you think, well, but the psychiatrist wouldn't be that way. Well. They can be so uh, people like your father I, you didn't give me a profile of him, so I don't know maybe he's a nice person who sexually abused you hes he could also be a terrible sadistic person who abused you, and there are people there you know when you're around if if you're a profe- like i 'll just say for me I've been around families like this, and i'm you know I can't say that I'm not intimidated by people like this, you know when I come at like I'll just give a fictional situation, so let's say that um I was the psychiatrist. So you so you tell me you're in a hospital and you tell me that um, you were being sexually abused by the father. Well, I'm probably in contact with the father because, they're, you know, you're 13 and the parents are probably coming into the hospital or at least in phone contact. And then I, let's say I go to the father and, you know, I interview the father and he seems like a very intense person. He's talking about, he's already talking about how the, uh, the hospital has made all these mistakes. He's talking about lawsuits. He's, uh, you know, there's just various different ways in which a person can intimidate a a mental health professional. And he might have been doing those things too. I don't know, of course. But anyway, that's one thing is people can just be terrified of him. And they just think like, look, I have to survive my day. Um, I probably should stick up for this kid. But I need to get through my life, and if I stick up for this kid, my life could go down the tubes. And so that's 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 not an excuse, but it's a reason. Also, um, <clears throat> if we're looking particularly at your mother, because that's the big question. It's like your mother your mother was at least told that you were being sexually abused, and why did she do nothing? Well. Again, it's very, very common for this to happen, and a very common reaction to people like that is like, "Oh, they're immoral. They're you know, they're weak. There's something wrong with them." The fact is, is that in my anecdotal experience, most people will go through at least a phase, if not their entire lives, in denial of this. And um, again, they they could be terrified, and but there's, it's usually a psychological thing regarding denial. She probably – your mother was pro- – I'm just going to take a guess and say your, your mother was probably abused when she was a kid. And when you are abused growing up, mistreated, you develop a lot of robust defense uh, systems often inv- involving denial of some kind or some sort of distraction. Uh, one thing is is to just can just to uh, agree with the abuser and just be like, you know, Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. And, and you're just like, well, you know, I deserved it. Or, well, you know, that's just the way people are. Or, well, you know, sometimes men do that kind of stuff. And it's not rational, but you do that to yourself because of the years and years and years of dealing with abuse. And you have to you're in this psychological quandary where you there's no there's no good way to look at it, you know. If if you're a kid, so say your mom is growing up in this mistreated atmosphere, she can she can conclude that the abuse is wrong. Well, to conclude that the abuse she was experiencing is wrong makes her uh, angry, right? And she gets hurt, and she has to, she feels compelled to act out against it. But when she acts out against it, things go bad for her, and so she has this quandary. It's like, well, if I hold on to reality, I end up incurring all these negative consequences. So there's another option of like letting go of reality and like adopting this weird version of reality that includes abuse as like being normal and being justified. With that perspective, it's bad because I'm I'm incurring the abuse, but you know, I would anyway. And if I have a defensive stance of denial, uh, I don't have to fight back anymore because I don't feel compelled to fight back because I feel like, well, I live in a rational world. That's the other thing. People like to live in a rational world. When irrational things happen, people try to fit the, it into their rational world. And so, so and now you look at that and you're like, well, that's bizarre. Like, can't you just snap out of it? No, you can't. It's like trying to convince a Democrat not to be a Democrat or a Republican not to be a Republican. It's like, can't, can't you just snap them out of it and have them not not think that way? It's like no. Like once you're, you know, you just have this repetitive, particularly when you develop these defense mechanisms early in life, they become such an important part of the personality that you can't convince something out of someone. Like it'd be like trying to convince someone who's heterosexual not to be heterosexual. That's a better example than a Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it, I mean, it's not the same, obviously, because being heterosexual is not a defense mechanism, but I hope you get my point. It's an ingrained part of your personality. It's it's who you are. Um, the other thing is, is that when you're abused growing up, you end up having a different idea of what's normal for parents to do. You know, all of us have a notion of like how angry is okay within the good limits. You know, we all understand there's like being too angry as a parent. You know, we all, we all know there's a line. But all of us have different lines of where that is. For some of us, it's like any amount of anger is not okay. For some of us, it's like, well, a little bit of anger in the right circumstances is, is okay. And so when you grow up in a being mistreated, then you end up typically your range of what's um, okay gets, gets moved. And that's another reason. It's not all the time, but, but so that's another reason possibly why your mother just didn't respond the other thing is, and this is, just goes for all the people in your life, and I'm not excusing what they did by any means. It, there's no excuse, but there are reasons, and it's so common that um, there's nothing strange about the system you're in. The the, the, big, the big thing here is it's just so hard to face. You know, when you have a 13-year-old who—the the other factor here that you're not talking about is that—as uh, a preamble to what I'm about to get into—is that— you didn't go into this, but I suspect that as at the age of 13, you had some acting out behaviors. Now, maybe you didn't, but, but it's likely that you did. And you'd be justified because you're 13, one, and two, because you were being mistreated. It'd be normal to have a lot of um, acting out behaviors where you would be making threats, or you would be moody sometimes, or you'd be a little snotty sometimes. I mean, again, it's normal because you're 13, but it would also be justified given the amount of crap you're going through. Well when you have kids like that who have say above average acting out, when they make a claim, like my dad was sexually abusing me, people tend to disbelieve that more often because of the acting out behavior. It's an, it's another one of those tragic catch 22s where, uh, because you're being abused, you're acting out more. And because you're acting out more, people won't believe you when you actually make the claim that you're being abused. And, uh, and abusive people will often know this too. So it's possible that your father actually was trying to encourage you to act out more by doing subtle things, or maybe even just you know non-subtle things, because he knew that the more crazy you seemed, the more likely people would not believe you when they when you actually came forward and and uh, asked for help and you know disclosed that you're being abused by him. So. That's a factor. It's Again, it's not an excuse. And as a clinician myself, I can look around that because um, because I know that issue. But for your mom and teachers and everyone else, it, it's possible that um, they didn't know. I mean, at the very least, uh, even, let's say you didn't act out. Let's say you just had a lot of moodiness. Well, when you have a lot of moodiness, people tend to just have associations with um, you know, someone not being very credible when they talk—it's um, just a cognitive bias that we have. So, so it's it's hard for people to face uh, given that ambiguity. So, you have a teacher who is um, heading into that situation. They 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 hear uh, allegations like, "Well, you know, um, uh, her father is being sexually abusive." Well, as a teacher, one, you might be thinking – now, teachers are mandated reporters in the United States anyway, uh, Washington State anyway. Um, but they're not trained very well. They're, often they get no training, and if they do get training, it's pretty small, pretty light. Um, and so you're a teacher and you're thinking, well, I'm sure someone's addressing this, right? I mean, it's not my job. I'm just the teacher. I'm sure if I'm hearing about it, it's certainly – the the mother has heard about it and you know if she's in therapy you know they why you know it's not my job so a lot of people kind of think well it's not really and and the reason why they do that is because often not all the time of course but the reason why they do that is because to deal with it incurs a lot of consequences to them and to other people they don't really know You, you know so imagine you're the teacher you hear about it so so you have this inkling of oh i should i should make that report well one the teacher might be thinking uh is that okay that I make the report or is that bad? Two, they might be thinking, does the kid want me to make the report? Because I don't know if I should, you know, maybe the kid doesn't want me to say anything because the kid is too ashamed. And again, because we have a society that shames the victim in this situation, this bizarre backwards world that shames victims of sexual abuse, the teacher might have some valid concerns about the child's uh, shame around this. Uh, three, the teacher might be thinking, "Am I going to lose my job? You know, am I going to get sued because I outed this father in a way that was, um, you know, too soon? Like the 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 kids lying about this, and you know, and and the list goes on and on." There's and there's also a lack of support from. Uh, society and from the legal system there there should be a very uh, clean easy way of making these kinds of reports without there being a massive set of consequences now we do have that you know child protective services there's a lot of usually government agencies that will facilitate that but it can't those government agencies can't account for the social shame around this sort of thing and for the uh uh the blaming of the victim, but not but also blaming of the person who came forward, so there's just a lot of different reasons. again, they're not excuses, but they're reasons that are so prevalent. Uh, in fact, I would venture to say the vast majority of people uh, do not do anything. Uh, it's getting better, but it's a big problem. Anyone out there who's been sexually abused or I guess particularly sexually abused as a kid will be able to tell you that, oh yeah. You know, that was like 98% of the people that I talked to will tell me that they'll be like, yeah, at the age of eight, I told my sister, or I told my mom, or I told my dad, or I told my teacher, or I told my therapist, and guess what, nothing happened. And so I learned that, you know, as you say it, uh, you learned that you were uh, just a silly little girl, you know, don't uh, say you're a stupid, silly girl. You know, you, the abuse is already telling you that you're a stupid little girl. Then you're being treated like you're a stupid, silly girl. And then you tell other people about it and they knew that they do nothing about it. And then you're like, oh, I must be a stupid, silly little girl. It's just this horrific thing. And I'm really so sorry that that happened to you. And parents, teachers, clinicians out there, please, 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 for the love of God, take the allegations seriously. It doesn't mean you have to in- immediately run to the cops, but take it seriously. Consult with someone. Consult with a professional. Consult with a therapist. Say, so hypothetically, you know, there's a situation, and I, I don't know what to do. What what's going to happen if I make the report? Or uh, because again, the report is just the beginning of the process. A lot of times, the reports don't go, don't go anywhere. It's it's a matter of you know how we you know if you're the mother in this situation. What do you do, right? Okay, uh, I report to CPS. Well, that does almost nothing to to solve the problem. What the mother, what, you know, the mother has to has to emerge from her own traumas in all likelihood, and two, she has to keep everyone safe. Which you know, how who's going to reassure her about that? Uh, she has to figure out if she is going to leave her husband she has to figure out where she's going to live what kind of job you know there's just so many different things that uh, a therapist could be there to really help someone or an advocate could could be there day to day and really help someone extract themselves so uh so yeah The, the last uh reason and defense mechanism that i forgot to mention earlier is that say you're abused and you, again, as I was talking about earlier, you internalize that relationship. So you internalize the abusive, abusive other and the abused self. And you have this relationship on the inside of you that's, that's uh, it's an internalization. And it's this unit that gets bolstered over time as you, the more and more you are abused. Well, part of the way to deal with that internalized representation is to suppress it and deny it, to say, like, it doesn't really exist. So that generally lends itself towards denying anyone else's uh, uh, mistreatment and abuse. The other thing is is the internalized voice so let's say again, your mother was abused growing up, and there's this internalized voice of "You're a stupid, silly girl okay so your mom might you know probably incurred that message you know the the message your mom told to you of "You're a stupid, silly girl" was probably told to her when she was young and so uh, she has this this battle going on inside of her of like oh I'm a silly I'm a stupid silly girl, and then as your mom actually thinks about stepping forward, uh, that shuts her up. So I guess if if you're you know it's up to you, but if you're looking for a way anonymous patron to relate to your mom as to why she didn't say anything, when you were in the hospital at the age of thirteen, you didn't you also didn't want to say anything. It was really hard for you to say something. Now, people on the outside who are stupid might look at you and go like, well, why didn't you just tell the psychiatrist with you know with your words? Why'd you, why did why'd you have to write it down? Why couldn't you just say something? Well, you know that the amount of shame and fear and terribleness and lack of trust was justified in making sure that you didn't say anything when your psychiatrist came and asked you. Uh, turns out your distrust was justified, given the, their reaction. But at the beginning, you didn't know that, and it's just so hard to say anything. Well, your mother also suffered from the same thing. In all likelihood, this she was a victim too, and um, she's also a perpetrator in a sense by the fact that she by you know accessory to the crime. But there, it's it's shame, it's self hatred, it's denial, it's surviving, it's. I'm a silly person. I'm worthless. Why would I come forward? No one will hear me. No one will listen. Why would I try? So that's usually why, again, I don't know your mom, but that's that's usually why. Okay, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from an anonymous patron who is writing in a follow-up email to a previous email that she sent. Uh, some of you might remember uh, a while back I responded to an email. She had written in, saying that um, she had been through a lot of abuse in her past, and what she really wanted in therapy was physical impact. Um, she went into some specifics as to what she was looking for. It, was, it wasn't it was massage. It wasn't um, anything that she could really find a professional to do. What she needed was someone to actually uh, put an impact onto her body. Um, and I can't remember the exact way she was saying it. And she said that it really helped her to break through to her trauma and helped her to heal and recover. And she was begging her therapist and other people to do this for her. And they were like, well, I could hold your hand. Maybe I could hug you, but I can't do this sort of thing. Um, they were saying that it was unethical for them to do this, and then you know i I told her she might look into somatic therapy and she uh, and I gave her some other advice I was also generally saying that it might be impossible to find anybody that would do what she's asking, because in my field, in therapy, uh, it's not the standard of practice to do such work. There, there's definitely somatic therapists out there that will do body work, but the kinds of things she was asking for was um, uh, sounding a little bit more beyond the, the typical kinds of somatic therapies that you'll get. Anyway, she wrote, she wrote in, thanks for your response to my question. I wanted to follow up and say that I wasn't able to find a somatic therapist locally who would work with me the way I wanted. However, I found something else that has been useful for the time being. There are people who work with people around issues of sexuality and intimacy and call themselves sacred intimates, sacred intimates. They have some kind of training, but I think it's still really underground and unregulated. The guy I found is also a massage therapist who uh, is willing to cross a lot of boundaries into impact and intimacy and sexuality. He talked to my therapist before he would agree to work with me in that way. We do a lot of impact and affection. He alternates between punching, slapping, or hitting into kissing my face or rubbing my back. So I just want to... I've emphasized that he alternates between punching me, slapping me and hitting me between that and kissing my face and rubbing my back. We're all really clear about the goal and he's careful checking in with my therapist. After we meet, I wondered if you had heard of sacred intimacy, especially because it's more prevalent on the West coast. And I believe Seattle is a hub for the training. It was the most loving, validating experience I've ever had. Yeah, so I've heard of such things. I haven't heard of sacred intimates, but I've heard of these kinds of practitioners. They're not therapists, as as you know. They're, it's a massage therapist, which is a, has its own regulations. But I'm guessing as he's uh, operating as a, quote-unquote, sacred intimate, he's not operating under any kind of license. And, uh, yeah, so it's pretty it, – it, it, I'm glad you found what you're looking for. That sounds fantastic um, because it's helping you. But you could imagine why it's hard to find someone like this you're 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 looking to hire a professional to punch you, slap you, hit you, kiss you, and rub you. you know that that could be seen in certain circles as um, either abuse from a professional or unethical behavior or something. Now, what I will say is that it's helping you, and it sounds like you are aware enough to understand what is and what isn't um, helpful to you and what is and what isn't abusive to you, and your therapist is monitoring it. I have to say, if I were your therapist, I'd, I'd be in a uh, pickle because it's, um, uh, as it's, a, it's a lot of unknown territory. Um, because one, like, say just on the off chance, like something bad happens where the practitioner hurts you too much or traumatizes you somehow. It doesn't sound like that's likely to happen, but let's say it does. Well, the therapist could be sued because the therapist signed off on this sort of thing and you'd have a hard time finding a jury side I would imagine, with the therapist and their defense, like, well, it seemed like it'd be a good idea. You know, when you brought this into the light of day, society and courts and, uh, uh, you know, licensing boards aren't necessarily going to smile on this kind of thing, because it's so unusual. It's just the main thing. It's just so unusual. Uh, But I'm in full support of, of exploring these kinds of things, as long as everyone is monitoring the situation, which sounds like they are. And I'm really happy that this sort of thing exists. I, I suspect that it'll be a while before this sort of thing is accepted um, in my field. I mean, in any, if anything, where my field is actually getting more and more restrictive in terms of what's an option for a therapist. So. Um, Uh, I could imagine it'll be, you know, 30, 50 years before this kind of therapy for a select few of people is um, considered to be uh, standard and ethical and understood and talked about and researched and all that kind of stuff. But... To the general public out there that are listening, I just want to say that uh, we all have to open our minds to the possibilities. There's a lot of different ways to heal, and this anonymous patron has taken her therapy by the horns and said, "I'm gonna, even though a, a, a therap, you know, even though a, therapists don't do this sort of thing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find this sort of thing because." I know that when I go through this, it's healing for me. And she said it was the most loving, validating experience that she's ever had. Uh, and you know, we just have to really respect that. So I'm I'm really happy for her. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from another anonymous patron. He writes, he or she, they write. My mother moved in with me about three years ago. My mother has never been a very honest person. She is quick to put the blame on everything and everyone other than herself. She is very emotional and takes questions very defensively. More than once since she moved into my house, I have tried to have conversations with her about her behavior, habits, parenting, grandparenting, hygiene, and they all go south very quickly. It definitely takes me back to my childhood and how much I avoid agitating my mom to keep her from having these emotional fits and how I spent a great deal of my time parenting her as a child. Once she moved in and was settled, my kids would visit her in her room and she rarely left her room. She would be playing video games or watching television. They would sit with her and ask her questions or want to play games with her. She would play with them, but always at a cost. For example, she would tell one kid, Yes, you can play this. Yes, we can play, we can play this game, but first I need you to scoop my cat's litter box or take my lunch dishes to the sink. This method slowly chased each of my kids away who did not see the prize of playing games worth the cost of doing grandma's bidding. All but one kid, that is. My second oldest, who has always been a people pleaser, was very happy to do multiple things for grandma in exchange for getting to play games or watch a movie. It has become so bad that now she asks him to do things all the time. She will call to him to take her laundry upstairs or her dishes to the sink, She gets upset when he forgets to feed her cat or scoop the box. When I mentioned these extra chores to her, she offered to start paying him if that would make him feel better. I told her that it was up to my son. I grew up learning to respect elders, and in my culture, elders are considered highly respected. They are the culture bearers. I am trying to balance teaching my kids to respect and be helpful, but I worry about the damage my mother is doing to my son, and I'm not sure how to combat it. My therapist told me I should let my son figure out that grandma's treatment is not that great and that coming between them might do more harm than good. But I am also very concerned, and I don't think I can take this, that route any longer. How do, I, how, how do I inoculate my kids against adults like this? How do you teach them to be kind and respectful but to expect the same treatment in return? Uh, how do you teach kids about boundaries? End of email. Yeah, this is an interesting uh, situation, interesting question. So the first thing I'll say, and I know people hate it when I say this, is that um, family therapy. (laughs) This is why family therapists exist. Uh, This is why I train family therapists. This is why I am a family therapist. This is why there's a licensing board for family therapists, is because there's a need for family therapy, and you are in need of family therapy for you, for your son, for your grandma, and maybe others. This, ma- imagine what good could happen if you, your son, and your grandma were in therapy talking about this. Uh, it wouldn't be beat up on grandma time. It would be, you know, let's let's talk about this. Uh, Family therapists are trained in how to manage conversations like that, how to understand them systemically, how to not take sides, how to understand triangulation, um, all that kind of thing. Short of that, uh, you know, it sounds like you're talking with your therapist about this, which is great. But you might want to talk to another therapist who actually specializes in families and and systems. Uh, You can do what we call family-oriented individual therapy. Uh, you could also take your son in, you know, say your grandma won't go, but you and your son go into another family therapist to a different therapist who's a family therapist. And you talk about these issues uh, because the reason why I say that is because there's too many things to consider. I mean, the, the easy answers that a lot of people have are the sort of the, the, the questions you're asking are. Uh, indicative of the solutions you're looking for. You know, how do you teach kids about boundaries? Well, that assumes that the solution to the problem is to teach your kids about boundaries. Uh, I don't know if that's the answer. Maybe it is, but there's just too many factors that I don't know of that could be present. I mean, We all understand that individual psychologies are complex. Well, when you have three people and and a whole family together, uh, it's it's infinitely complex. There's there's just too many things. Again, the knee jerk reaction is, well, you got to push back on the grandma. You got to put her in her place. You got to tell her to back off. You got to, you know, the kid has to learn that he can't be walked on and. And all these kinds of things. And, and again, maybe that is the solution. I I, I I don't know. But it's not clear to me from your description that that's the answer. So so family therapy or family-oriented therapy or, um, you know, uh, either you and grandma, you grandma, kid, you and kid, or kid and grandma, or some, some kind of combination of that. Um, the other thing I'll say is it doesn't sound like an emergency. I know it feels like an emergency to you, but uh from your description, uh as your therapist is saying, it, it, you know, trying to get in between the two of them might do more harm than good, which is absolutely, you know, possible. Um that doesn't mean do nothing. You know, you're you're like, well my therapist is saying don't get in between them. Um and my impression is that your therapist isn't going on to talk with you about other options because there's there's other options besides just not doing anything. You know, there's, there's a lot of other ways to approach it. So again, a, a family systems therapist would be able to help you with that. Um, so, you know, it does. But again, it doesn't sound like an emergency. There, there wouldn't be anything inherently wrong with, or it, it wouldn't be predictive that there'd be a bad outcome if you, quote, unquote, did nothing. He, he's probably getting something out of it. You know, maybe he, It looks to you like it's bad, right? You're like, my son is doing all these chores, emptying the litter box, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, my mom's getting away with this bullshit and just walking all over him. And I feel like she deserves to be pushed back on. And, you know, maybe he kind of feels that. Maybe your son is like, yeah, I know my mom. I I know grandma makes me do all these dumb chores, but... But I get something out of it because I love my grandma, and my grandma makes me feel special in a way that my siblings don't or something like that. So it it doesn't look to me like it's an emergency. Um, plus, there's nothing inherently wrong with, uh, you know, a quid pro quo, if you will, where, uh, you know, uh, the grandma will spend time and get something out of it. I, I'm quite positive that your mom actually enjoys spending time with your family and when things are going well um so you know uh, so again it doesn't sound like an emergency the the question there the, but the two main questions here are there are three there's three main questions one main question is why is your mom like this you know why is she a jerk <laughs> why is she in her room all the time why you know is she is she is she depressed is she ashamed of something is she having bad health is she grieving something is she disconnected? Has she, is she suffering from trauma? I mean, uh, I'm guessing at least some of those things are true. And and if she has no way of talking about that with anybody and, and, and hasn't ever really processed those feelings, then we could imagine why uh, 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 someone would want to stay in their room all the time, not come out, and would... F- feel lack of motivation to to do a lot of things. So having your son actually spend time with her might be her saving grace. Um, Also, you know, why would she sort of foist these chores on him? Uh, To me, it sounds like a lot of the chores have to do with her leaving her room, Uh, you know, taking the dishes to the kitchen, uh, taking the litter to the garbage. And all, the, all these are things involving her leaving the room and what is it about her leaving the room that maybe she's agoraphobic you know there's there's a lot of different possibilities here maybe she feels unwelcome maybe she's trying to be invisible to, to you because she doesn't want to uh, you know rock the boat she's just like well the, the least amount of footprint I can put on this house the better it is for the family and um, better it is for me so I don't know there, there's clearly something going on there um, that the second main question, so that's the first main question, you know, why is she like that? You know, instead of just being like, how, how am I going to push back on her with boundaries? How about think like, why is she like this to begin with? Um, now you've, you've said that she's always been unreasonable. Um, and so, uh, so there's that, which, which leads me to another question I'll get to later. But the, the second question I have is why is your son a people pleaser? You know, what kind of schemas are is he operating under that makes him easy to be walked on? The solution isn't necessarily – and this is kind of part of your question, right? It's like the dilemma that you're in. Um, but the thing I would really focus on, if you're truly concerned about your son being walked on, then I would – really try to figure out how you can help him develop into a more balanced person overall with it with everybody because if you push back on grandma you know say you go to grandma and you say look i'm putting my foot down you can no longer tell my kids to do any chores for your house that that's a that's a new house rule and then you go to your son and you're like you are not allowed to do chores for grandma that's just off the table so say you, you kind of put your foot down it sounds like you don't want to do that but let's just say you did well, that doesn't teach your son anything about people pleasing, right? It 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 doesn't do anything for that, and probably uh, could have some bad effects down the line for everyone if if you did something like that. So, and even if you did something more subtle, like you just communicated that you thought it was not okay, which it sounds like you've already done. So that, that's the other thing. And again, therapy can help with that. The last main question here is: there's a in family systems, we understand that there are triangles. And you have a triangle, a pretty severe one, or not severe, but rigid one, pronounced one, between you, grandma, and son. So you got you, you have your grandma, and you have your son. And the three of you are involved in a triangulation. Now, some triangles can be healthy and some can be dysfunctional. Yours is dysfunctional because by your description, it's not getting any better and the tension is rising, and the way that I would see this, if I were working with your family, is that you and grandma have a longstanding conflict. Uh, I don't know grandma's side of the story. I know your side of the story that you think that your grandma is, um, you know, she uh, is, what, what was your description? Um, uh, let's see. She's quick to blame everything on everyone. You know, she blames other people. When you When you go to her and you say, like, "Hey, you know, there's some habits in the house that I don't like, uh, those conversations go south pretty quickly. So you have a bone to pick with her. That doesn't have anything to do with your son. I mean, it has something to do with your son, but the bone that you have to pick with your mom has probably good you know dates back many, many years. Uh, your mom has bones to pick with you she is uh, probably resentful of you and has tension around you and is not happy with you and you know there's a lot of unresolved conflict between the two of you well whenever we have that and there's no way to resolve that conflict we tend to triangulate meaning we draw a third person into that as a way of stabilizing the system and um, helping us to cope day to day doesn't solve the problem. Often, but it helps to distract us and keep us from flying apart so it's it, it sound, it's a classic triangulation so uh, we have to acknowledge that in systems theory that we're not necessarily acting consciously and we're not necessarily acting under our own individual wishes when we're in a system so uh, so you have this conflict the two you and your mom have uh, you you both have concluded that it's not possible to work it out, that for the two of you to just sit down and talk it out, um, that it won't go well. Now, from your perspective, you'll say, well, it's all her fault. But I'm guessing from her perspective, she'll say that it's at least partially your fault. You know, who who's really to blame? What's the difference? It doesn't really matter. Family therapists don't care. It's like, well, how do we, how are we going to work this out? But that, that that tension is there. And so, uh, so you're You and your grandma have both pulled in your son into that conflict, Uh, and you are now trying to get back at your mom by having your son draw boundaries with her, and your mom is trying to get back at you by drawing him into her world and having him do things that she knows you don't like, and so both of you are using him in that way. Now, it's not conscious, and everyone does this. Every, Every family does this. Every every married couple, every grandma, and, and, you know, this happens all the time. There's nothing strange about what you're doing. So I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything that, that everyone doesn't do, but, uh, but that's, that's one way of looking at it. And it, you know, it sounds definitely like that's at least part of the reason here. So some of the energy that you're feeling around, you know, how am I going to get my son to draw boundaries with her? And this is bullshit. What she, what, what grandma is doing to my son is bullshit. Well, some of the energy you're feeling around that is uh, at least partially, if not mostly, if not entirely, due to the fact that what really we're talking about here is that you want to draw boundaries with your mom and that you don't want to be a people pleaser to your mom and that you want to uh, tell your mom to back off and uh, get a life or something. And uh, for your mom, she is probably also... Uh, you know, it's hard to know what her perspective is. But um, I guess in a way, you could almost see it as grandma is trying to connect with you by connecting with your son. And, and or uh, wants to control you by controlling your son, because her model of, of closeness involves some level of control. Again, this is all speculation. (laughs) I have no idea. Like I said, in order for this truly to be resolved or addressed, you'd have to have a family therapist really look at this very closely and ask everyone for their perspective and know the exact sequence of events, uh, which can be very illuminating. It's like, okay, so-and-so does this, so-and-so does that, so-and-so does that. How, you know, how does each sequence work out? What's the circular causality here? So I don't know. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but let me know how things are going because I'm curious. All right, this next email is from patron Arnett from New York. She writes, My question is, what can therapists do to help extremely anxious clients in session? What what can therapists do to help extremely anxious clients in session? What can I do as a client to regulate my anxiety? I have tried focusing on my breathing, but this is difficult to maintain for a full session. I am a, a woman in my late 20s, and I have had about six therapists as an adult. As a child, due to my behavioral issues at school, I was barred from recess and forced to spend that time in the guidance counselor's office instead. I have some attachment issues, primarily because my mother sent me to live with her parents as a newborn. Of the five or so therapists, at least two terminated with me under unfortunate circumstances. One thought I was not progressing in my treatment for depression and ultimately terminated me because I was not willing to engage in treatment with a psychiatrist. Today, I am on meds and I am doing fine. Most recently, a therapist I was seeing long-term was abruptly let go from practice, so I have recently started over with someone new. It's been so difficult dealing with the fear of being terminated again. In the past, these terminations have really wreaked havoc on my functioning and my personal life. I really, really like my new therapist. I feel really seen in session with her. She is is very gentle with me and helps me to slow down when I need to. In an early session, I dissociated while recounting some mild childhood trauma I wasn't really aware of. She recognized it, helped me get grounded, and we have been focusing on lighter topics, basic coping, and identifying additional coping skills instead. But as I begin to feel more attached to her, my fear of abandonment abandonment grows. What can therapists do to help, you know, so going back to original questions, what can therapists do to help extremely anxious clients in session? What can I do as a client to regulate my anxiety? Uh, So end of email. As I always say, I get emails like this all the time. Uh, Listeners will recognize this question as something that I have responded to before. And since there are so many people suffering from this, I I guess it's um, important that I occasionally check in with this one and repeat essentially what I've been saying this whole time is um, the question, as I said with a previous uh, person, the question uh, uh, already is a problem. Uh, You know, how, how do you regulate your anxiety? Well, the issue is, is you can't, I mean, you're, there's things you can do, for sure, and it sounds like you're talking with your therapist about that, uh, how to regulate your emotions. You know, deep breathing is one thing, but that's one of a thousand things that might work for you. For many people, deep breathing doesn't work at all. I mean, deep breathing isn't going to hurt for, for most people, but um, there's a lot of things you can do to, to quote-unquote, cope. But the issue, uh, the questions uh, that I usually get, is like, well, how do I deal with this anxiety? The thing is, is... you. You can't get rid of the anxiety. Uh, the anxiety is going to be there because uh, something very important to you is at stake. Um, you know, if if you had uh, an, an animal like a pet and you're – or let's say, you know, I don't know, someone you love or an animal you love ha- had a lab test done and you're anxiously awaiting the results – And you're really worried. You're like, well, you know, if the results go one way, this person might die soon. If the results go the other way, then they'll live for a long time. You're going to be anxious. And there's no way to get around that. It's rational to be anxious. Well, it's rational for you to be anxious because you were abandoned as a child by your mother. Your mother just abandoned you. and. You've been abandoned since, and so your fear of abandonment is rational, given the fact that you've been abandoned before. Now, you're taking the leap by going to this therapist and trusting that this therapist won't abandon you, but how do you know for sure? You've thought that before, and you were wrong. So it's rational to to be anxious, and there's a lot at stake. You know how important not being abandoned is to you. Uh, we all know how important— Attachments and uh, having people love us and be loyal to us and dedicated to us. We all understand how important that is uh, for us to function well. Uh, You know, tons of research show that without secure attachment, everything falls apart for us. Mental health, behavioral health, job, you know, sleep, diet, um, you know, work performance, everything. So the fact that you have anxiety is normal. And I know that's not very soothing because you. You know, I'm basically saying you're doomed to have that anxiety, but you're in the perfect place to heal so that you won't be anxious over time. But that takes time. You're in therapy. Keep talking about it. Keep processing it. Sounds like you're in good hands. Stay in therapy. Keep bringing it up. You know, just tell your therapist, by the way, I'm so anxious. I'm writing into the podcast, you know, asking, <laughs> asking for help. You know, that's how anxious I make sure your therapist knows all the time. Not only can your therapist help you pragmatically with that, but also just telling your therapist you're anxious, having your therapist understand you and validate you will help you feel less anxious. Because the reason why you're anxious is not because you lack skills of dealing with anxiety. It's because you've lacked experiential, secure attachment over time. So the only long-term real solution to your anxiety is having long-term, secure, non-abandoning relationships. Now, um, you can ask your therapist directly uh, to reassure you that she's not going to leave you you know people ask you know I, I I specialize in borderline for crying out loud and other cluster B, histrionic borderline uh, borderline narcissistic and so when people come to me uh, it's a matter of time before there is a point where they will say so I've been worried that you're going to abandon me or they'll push me away they'll try to get me to terminate with them or something you know something wonky will happen and and we'll enter a phase of treatment that always always happens where i am being asked by the client you know are you going to abandon me or do you want to abandon me or you know are you are you going to close up your practice someday or something you know and so i will very directly tell my clients no i i'm i've i've been a therapist for a long time i'm always going to be a therapist i have a home office so i and I'm self employed, so I can't get fired. (laughs) And even if I was at an office and and could get fired, uh, I would take you with me wherever I went, you know, I, I'm not moving out of Seattle, I'm not going anywhere. And this is part of the uh, thing that all of you trainees need to think about as well Is you know, uh, it's not a major consideration, but it is something to think about in terms of like, where you start your practice, because you want to make sure that You're not setting up a situation where you're going to haphazardly abandon all your clients. Now, you know, sometimes that just has to happen, and you just got to do what you got to do. But it's something to think about. I will say that it's a luxury of mine, born and raised in Seattle, always lived in Seattle, will always live in Seattle, that for me, um, it's – I can always tell my clients that. You know, I can just be like, look, I'll – you know, one day I'll die, and and that'll – take me away from you. But I'll, I'll never, um, you know, i in all likelihood, uh, I, this, this therapeutic relationship, you will terminate with me long before I retire or something like that. So, So you can ask for reassurance. There's nothing wrong with that, and you'd probably want to get a good idea of that anyway, because maybe your therapist's like, "Well, actually, I'm getting married in next year, and I am moving away." And so, you probably do. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't still have a secure relationship with that person, but it's something that um, should be talked about. Um, So again, it's it's this um, long-term secure attachment. Now, best case scenario, you have a number of secure attachments in your life. That you're internalizing and and healing, and thus you won't have so much anxiety over time. But you have to experience that. So I know there are more of you experiencing that out there besides Arnett from New York, and I I hope that you hear what I'm saying here. Um, I, I know it sucks, but it's just the way that it's going to be, and. What a wonderful thing, Arnett, you are doing for yourself by staying in therapy. And it sounds like you're in good hands. You know, just just stick it out. Keep going. Tell your therapist you're anxious. You can ask for more sessions a week, maybe. Um, you can talk about how you can have other secure attachments and other relationships in your life. Uh, there's, there's a lot of other things that uh, I, you know, I've worked with people on the podcast and professionally, like you can bring a little trinket from your therapist's office with you as a transitional object, you know, like your therapist has, um, you know, a little statue or something. And you, you ask your therapist, can, can you hold on to the statue in between sessions? Cause it'll reassure you. And so whenever you're anxious, you hold on to that statue and it grounds you and it makes you, you know, it reminds you that you're you're tethered to your therapist you can ask for a a five-minute phone check-in or something now your therapist has will have a different approach to that uh, depending on you know what they want to do but there's just a lot of things you can do to kind of spread out that security out over time so which is which is good because you know that is additional reassurance to you that attachments can be trusted all right Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle in which I talked about BoJack Horseman and other sorts of things. Again, uh, just letting you know about all the little things that I want people to do uh, for us is review us on iTunes. That would be fantastic. Become a patron. Join us on Facebook and Instagram. Join the Facebook fan group. If you want to contact me, you want to use the email. uh, uh, You want to use the Contact Us page on our website, please. Join us on YouTube Live Thursdays, 2 p.m. Seattle time. If you want to access the archive, go to the website. That's the best place. Um, I get emails about that all the time. Uh, uh, podcast apps only have the most recent, like one, two, three hundred episodes. We have over a thousand episodes. So you gotta to go to the website. And a lot of our best episodes are in the past. Now I'm I'm doing reruns if you've noticed, and so sometimes they'll they'll cycle back through. Also, if you're at the lower levels on, on Patreon, um, consider moving up the ranks <laughs> because, uh, you know, it's a great thing when people are at higher tiers. You know, the the tier where you get the stickers, the tier where you get the mug, the tier where you get um, consultation with me. Those are, um, you know, it's really special when people go up the ranks, if you will. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.